Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Friends of Sanctuary podcast. I'm Marianne Bartels, Chief Investment Strategist at Sanctuary Wealth. Today, I am very pleased to welcome our special guest, Sonal Desai, Executive Vice President and Chief Investment Officer of Fixed Income at Franklin Templeton. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sonal. Thank you so much for inviting me, Marianne. It's always lovely to speak to you. Thank you. Let's just start off with your general overview of the fixed income markets as we're entering here in 2024. So I would say that today where we are, and I'll use as a proxy U.S. Treasuries, where we are is slightly better than where we were at the end of last year. At the end of last year, I think markets had gotten seriously over their skis. You know, uh, Powell just lit lit up a whole bunch of fireworks for everyone, not just in fixed income markets, but even equity markets with his press conference at the end of December. But where we are today, we have seen some acknowledgement of that overshoot, I think, that we saw. So we are better positioned today. I know we'll talk more about individual sectors and so on. But today, a great place to be for fixed income as we look forward into the remainder of this year. So Sanal, many, in fact, I would say most, were forecasting a recession last year. And surprisingly, we had a GDP number that was almost 5%. Right now, we're tracking around 3%, much higher than what most people were anticipating. Um, Where do you see the economy maybe for the remainder of this year? Are you looking for a recession? Do you think the Fed is actually, uh, might stick a soft landing? So here's the thing. I just have to say this first. We weren't calling for a recession. I have to say that, not got it. I don't want to say I told you so, but I'm, I'm going to say when I sa- sat down with Barron's at the start of last year, I had said that at that time, markets were, Fed funds was at 425, 450, markets were pricing in 50 basis points of cuts last year. I said we, we would end the year at 525, 550. Sorry, I just to say that. But you should. You should. I, I, I'd say on that macro call, we pretty much had it. And taking it forward into this year, some of the same rationale actually still holds. Last year, we didn't think there would be a recession because there was a lot of fiscal stimulus still in the economy. And despite everyone talking about tight monetary policy, I happen to think that monetary policy is not outrageously tight. And I think this year, we will continue to see decent growth. I would not be surprised if we got similar annual growth of around two and a half or so. Q4 was an outlier, but if I look at full year growth last year, we were at around two and a half. We might get the same this year as well. Well, as you know, the consumer has been spending. The consumer has not slowed down. We've had a strong job market. There's been uh, the swift economic effect, right? The Eras Tour um, has produced uh, revenues for businesses that I don't think anybody was forecasting. What's your kind of outlook for where the consumer is going through the rest of the year? You know, the consumer is not, I'd say that fears of the death of the U.S. consumer have been wildly exaggerated. People have been talking now for two years about consumers running out of their savings glut. If you actually look at savings balances, checking accounts, money market accounts, the consumer is actually still pretty comfortable with in terms of the buildup of cash which happened over the period of COVID. That's number one. 
Number two, the consumer is still employed. That's extremely important. So when you're at record levels, record levels, record levels. So actually, I joined two things together. We're at record levels of uh, unemployment in terms of it being so low, together with record highs in terms of the fiscal spend. So you put the two things together, you've got a very, you've got a lot of stimulus in the economy still. So I think the consumer sitting on a lot of savings, the consumer is still employed, and uh, we hear a lot about credit card debt building up. But you have to look at credit card debt in real terms. In real terms, credit card debt is basically where we were at around the start of this century, so in the early 2000s. Consumers in a very good position. So uh, the way I look at it, it's generally, because I'm, I'm in agreement with you, I look at disposable income as a percentage of all their debts, which when they're reporting this, they, they don't talk that way. They just talk the absolute levels. But the, so although maybe you're seeing credit card spend go up in some delinquencies on a net net basis, they still have money. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the reason people, in even the Wall Street Journal, so, 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 you know, newspapers should know better. This is the financial press. We'll talk about trillions of dollars instead of talking about percent of GDP and the reason or percent of disposable income. The reason they do this is simply because it is a much more sensational number to talk about so many trillion as opposed to so many percent. And it's we're, 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 we're totally in agreement with this. So let's talk about jobs, right? We have record low uh, employment or unemployment, I should say, right? We have a lot of people employed. We just had a surprisingly very large print um, of jobs, meaning that the job market is is flush with, with, with people. Yeah. We're not seeing a slowdown. So where are you seeing the job market? Obviously, going from zero to five and a quarter has not slowed the job market at all. I think going from zero to five and a quarter, that's an entire discussion on really what is neutral for the Fed in this new world that we live in. And we can certainly dive into is that, that, that deeper. Is that that R star that R-star. they talk, that they talk about? It is indeed R star. And I've actually, it's been a bee in my bonnet for a few years now because uh, everyone is, has been waiting for R star. Uh, and I'll get to the employment point, but the R star for it to go back to where we were in post-global financial crisis period, pre-COVID, and even a little bit after the COVID shock hit, when essentially inflation was about 2%, but the expectation was that real rates of interest, which is the real return you get, just needed to be around a quarter of a percent or half a percent. So two and a quarter, two and a half was considered what R star is. Doesn't make sense because prior to that, from the 1950s to 2007, that number was closer to four and a half. The 2.25 was comparable to around four and a half. And I've been arguing for a while that actually what, what the outlier was, was that period after the global financial crisis. We aren't in an outlier now. So I actually think that R star is higher and the Fed has started talking about that. Talking about the job market, the job market is strong. Where do we see it? Look, it's a 3.6, 3.7 right now. By the end of the year, we might get closer to 4, 4.1. It's still incredibly strong. It's a strong job market. We are seeing rebalancing, which is right. Right, right. So I find if based, I have a degree in economics, you have a much more advanced degree in economics than I do. But I would have thought based on our traditional models, a Fed in less than a year going from zero to five and a quarter, 
would have possibly slowed down the economy much more, possibly a recession, but obviously you didn't see that happening. You would have expected maybe the job market to be more impacted. And here we are growing very well, strong job market, but we are seeing inflation come down. Yeah. And I think, right, the Fed has a dual mandate. They, they want to have full employment. And obviously the mandate that got out of control for them was inflation. We're starting to see that come in. Do you, do you still think that we can get to the inflation target that the Fed is trying to get to, which is 2%? I think we can. I just don't think we're doing it when the market thinks we're doing it. And I, that, I actually don't believe we're, doing, we're going to get as far as the Fed thinks it's going to get this year. So let me explain. Absolutely. I think inflation, when we were at cruising at, you know, 7, 8, 9% even, there were two components to it. One is the piece that Powell loves to talk about, which were the supply chain bottlenecks, which absolutely had an impact. But at the same time that you had those supply chain bottlenecks, you had blowouts on the fiscal and you had massive monetary easing. The Fed balance sheet, $800 billion prior to the global financial crisis, $4 trillion on the eve of COVID, and we ended up peaking at close to $9 trillion. So It's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. So essentially what the Fed did over the course of COVID in a few brief months did more than QE 1, 2, and 3 after the global financial crisis. And we had zero interest rates. And we had zero interest rates. So essentially, we had so much of juice poured into it. The economy was, a, was in an absolute sugar high. So the way I see it is that the easy, low-hanging fruit is getting from 9% to something like 3 3.5%. Getting that last 150, 200 basis points of inflation out of the system, that's tougher because that's coming from the demand side. So, you know, supply chain bottlenecks have gone away. But you are at a point where the demand issue is still alive because people have decent wages and they have jobs. So one thing we haven't talked about, which can be inflationary, is deglobalization, right? And, and the, the new words that we're hearing is onshoring, nearshoring, reshoring, and that's inflationary. One of the things that I'm seeing longer term is that we may be building in more inflation than what we're used to historically. I do think inflation can continue to come down, but the trend, the secular trend in inflation might be changing for all the reasons that you talked about, in addition to all the fiscal stimulus, because we normally don't have this kind of fiscal stimulus when an economy is growing. And to be honest, I don't think our models really understand how to even input that because we've never even seen anything like this in history. What, what, what are your views on that in terms of the longer-term structural shift for inflation? You mentioned one extremely important factor, which people look at, but not in conjunction with inflation, and they should, because you're absolutely right. What people tend to forget, when we, some people call it friend-shoring, right? People tend to forget bringing the jobs back, bringing industry home, it is giving you security when you bring it back from China, point is, we've got to remember, there was a reason people went to China in the first place. It was so incredibly cheap. So when you bring it back, even if you bring it back to a Mexico, the reason, you know, because corporations do what's best for their bottom line. And they went to China because it was the cheapest place to produce. Everyone agrees that some level of reshoring and security of, su of supply chains needs to be acquired. 
And a part of that means bringing it even if it costs more. And you're totally right, that might include and will include higher prices in a secular way. And you talk about fiscal. And I would throw in a third one, and that's greenflation. Now here, I'm not going to talk, get into, uh, there's no reason to get into the politics of it. The reality is that when you want to change how energy is produced, you have to invest a lot in expensive technology. And when you do that, it has an impact on prices. Because the one thing which doesn't change is the need and requirement for energy. For humans, you need energy. You know, that's the way we, that's the way industry functions. It's the way our houses function. This is just the way it is. So I, I see over the, this 10, 12 year period after the global financial crisis, the buzzword was deflation. I, I think it was so overstated, secular stagnation, deflation. These were, these are stories that I don't think are going to be our stories for the next 10 years. It is going to be about the budget deficits. It is going to be about nearshoring because one thing Democrats and Republicans can agree on is they don't like China very much. So I don't see, I don't see the outlook for a sudden uh, worming of trade relations under any administration, right? So you do have that element. And then you do have the fact that over a multi-year period, governments across the West have committed to greener forms of energy, and that requires massive amounts of capital spend. And in a transitional period, more expense. So more expensive, but good for the economy longer term. So, you know, no, that, that, that's a very interesting point. If we are talking about green technology and good for the economy, it's good for the planet. It's good for many things, not necessarily the economy. The economy actually is good for the economy, potentially shorter term, because you have all this capital expenditure. But remember, this is not us building brand new factories, producing brand new additional energy. It's substitution. Ah, so keep in mind, you are retiring one form of energy production and, and substituting, substituting another one. And until our technology is enormously more efficient, in fact, if anything, you might see productivity, see productivity going down. You're seeing this in Germany, by the way, right? You've taken away nuclear, you've taken away, you're trying to defossilize, et cetera, et cetera. And you are in a situation where actually productivity in the transitional period is not going to go up. It will actually go down. Okay, so now I'm going to switch to artificial intelligence because that's the opposite end of productivity for the potentially, right? So we have to look longer term. So in some of the work that I've been doing, um, and I looked at some old speeches from Greenspan, and he started talking about, you know, computers, telecom, adding to productivity back in the late 90s. And they were still trying to understand it. Now, computers entered the business world in the 1980s, but it doesn't seem that the productivity enhancements didn't really hit until the 1990s. And the stock market really reflected that from 95 to 2000. So, okay, so energy may be draining productivity. How do you see artificial intelligence potentially impacting productivity? So that's such a great question. And I would just say, even before, taking it back to, to your question, you know, 
I think it was uh, Robert Solo who famously said, you can see technology everywhere except in productivity. That was in 1997, boom. And then you get the productivity, <laughs> boom. We just took off in, as we went into the, into the 2000s, which tells you once, you know, as an economist, you should never make predictions. <laughs> You're very liable to be wrong. No, but what I would say is actually even before we talk about artificial intelligence, Keep in mind, over the last 10 years, companies have been doing massive capex. And in fact, people have been asking, where is the productivity? Because as I mentioned earlier, we've been seeing very low productivity in the post-global financial crisis period. It was 1.4, 1.5. But you know, it's been nine months. I just wrote a piece yesterday, uh, actually, which is out today on productivity. So it's interesting you should ask about this. But... Uh, over the last nine months, we've seen this pick up in productivity. I think it's too early for it to be uh, generative AI, to be honest. I do think it is the cumulative effect of what we've seen companies do in CapEx, in technology, over the last uh, eight to 10 years, keeping in mind that this increase in productivity is coming at a time where companies, we aren't seeing a surge in unemployment. So it's not productivity coming because people are fire getting fired because that's a mechanical increase in productivity. If you see a reduction in the labor force, we're not seeing that. Seeing a strong labor market at the same time, we're seeing these increases in productivity. And you know, it might have legs. And then you throw in art uh, artificial intelligence. And I think that the results of AI, I am hoping if these last nine months our precursor to continued strength and productivity, that in the next few years, AI actually really does start showing up in the numbers. So it starts showing later in the decade. And then decade. And then yes. exactly. And then you'll start seeing it in earnings. And then you can start seeing it maybe in additional stock prices. I would say that right now, what we've seen on the AI front, I do wonder how much the market has already discounted what's going to happen in the next few years because, you know, this massive run up, you know, with information dissemination being as fast as it is, the market reacts like that to any piece of news, whether it's fixed income or equities. So I think that the market may have already discounted a lot of what I'm talking about, but I do think that this surge of capex has more legs and more potential to, to generate genuine growth. And by the way, higher neutral rates. Your neutral rate is your inflation rate plus basically your productivity rate. So if you've seen a distinct increase in productivity, then, you know, your neutral rate should be higher. That's a separate, uh, separate point. Well, let's stay on the subject of interest rates. So where are you seeing the Fed this year in terms of rates and maybe rate, potential rate cuts? So, you know, I had right until Powell did his press conference and we saw the SEPs in December, I was in the camp of 50 basis points, no more this year in the second half. Now I can see that the Fed really wants to cut rates. They, they do want to cut rates. Not as much as the market wants them to cut rates, but the Fed wants to cut rates. So I'll Is that because real rates are high? You know, real rates are high, but the opposite side of that is where we started this conversation. The Fed raised rates from zero to five and a half, and we've seen no slowdown whatsoever in the economy, which means that the economy's tolerance for rates is significantly changed from where we were. Getting back to your R star neutral neutral rate. So it's if R star is higher today, then it's a on paper, monetary policy is not as restrictive. So they don't need to cut as much. They don't need to cut as much. And therefore, for me, 
If they do 75, it's only in the second half of this year. And, you know, certainly in the last few weeks, we've seen a little bit of the Fed trying to claw back the ground that, frankly, Powell lost in December. You know, not just not just via Powell, but also via different uh, Fed speakers. I tend to think that, yes, second half, I would accept 50. And actually for next year, I think 75 is enough as well. It always comes back to where I see our star, which is really 375.4. And that is when the economy is not expanding, not contracting. There is a, in the early days of the rate hikes, and I would say even in the middle of last year, I would talk to people who anticipated in a recession, the Fed will cut to zero. My view is if we were in a recession, the Fed cuts to about two and a quarter. We're in an expansionary space once we're at two and a quarter. We don't need to go to zero. It's interesting because if you study behavioral finance, we always want to go back to what we felt before. And I feel you're correct. People are going to feel that, oh, the Fed will go back to zero. But when I look at the long-term structure of rates, I think that was a generational lull like the 1930s. We're not seeing that again. I completely agree. And I would note that, you know, there was a crisis, which was the source of rates going to zero in 2007-8. And there was a crisis which resulted in the COVID era zero I would note that given where we see inflation now, given the kind of budget deficits we've run for the last multiple years now, and apparently will run for the next multiple years, if I look at that combination of factors, I am concerned if we get another outsized event, we don't have that many silver bullets left. So let's talk about that because there is some concern in the regional banking space and commercial real estate. What what are you seeing? Are you concerned about any of the regional banks? So, you know, I I think individual regional banks will face difficulties. But the very important word here is regional, as opposed to the money center banks. If you look at regional banks and the commercial real estate sector more broadly, it tends to be very linked to specific cities. So, for example... I would anticipate there will be some cities and with and the regional banks which have lent into commercial real estate. Frankly, I would put the whole of California in this space because California is undergoing major, uh, it's a very delayed return to city centers. Let's put it that way. Between the fact that you've got this concentration of tech, which is continuing to work promote for a long time, together with, a multi, with multiple other factors, the ca- California real estate, commercial real estate market is uh, a little bit down in the dumps. And I would say regional banks, which have lent into that, are probably going to continue to see pain as this works its way out. But you don't see anything systemic. So systemic is harder to see just because, you see, we had a systemic issue with mortgages. But remember, mortgages are owned across the country. If you have pockets, if I had to compare it to something, potentially it would be closer to something like savings and loan, but even that was more widely dispersed, which isn't to say that it isn't going to result in pain for specific sectors within commercial real estate and specific regional banks. But at this point, we're not seeing this as a systemic issue which goes across the banking sector, just in part because of how within the sector, how very specific 
And there's there's been a lot and there's been a lot of regulation since 2008 2009 and they can't leverage the balance sheets the way they did in 2008 and 2009. And of course, the loan loss reserves that at least the major banks have are, are quite significant. Massive, massive. And you know, and also the liquidity in the system is still enormous. So I think when people hear real estate, it's really a form of PTSD to 2007, 8. And I think that's probably incorrect. It's, of course, it's of concern. However, cities come back. Look at New York, right? Uh, yes, you have issues, but not in the best pieces. So if you're invested in banks, you want to be very careful, Mabel, very where you're invested. I would agree. And beyond that, I would actually say that our banking sector analysts continue to monitor extremely carefully because we are looking for buying opportunities. We really don't think it's going to be a cross. It's going to be. That's interesting. Very, yeah, that's very interesting. So we talked about fiscal spending. Um, the United States has a very high deficit. Um, there's concern about funding, but we recently just had a 10-year auction that did really, really well. Any, any thoughts on the, the, the fiscal deficit? Is it really a major problem? And how could that potentially impact the U.S. dollar? Okay, so is it a major problem? Absolutely it is. Look, it's, it's something uh, which happens slowly and then happens fast, right? In the sense that uh, there is a sense that the famous bond market vigilantes are going to stay, are going to remain asleep at the wheel forever. They don't, because remember the middle of last year. And I think if you have year after year of the uh, government printing 6% deficits of an ever-increasing GDP, so you're talking about budget deficits, which are close to $2 trillion going out really far into the future, there is a funding issue. Now, I think one thing which people tend to forget is there's something which we as economists consider fiscal dominance and financial repression. Financial repression is what emerging markets do where they force banks to hold huge quantities of government debt because it is risk-free. We know the real reason is in countries like India, for example, is someone has to buy that debt. And so you try to make sure that for very good reasons, banks hold that debt. And the other part is, of course, the Fed. And the Fed is not going to, it has given lots of advance notice that it's not taking its balance sheet back to $4 trillion. It's now talking about something which potentially is going to be significantly larger, which essentially means that there will be a continuing source of demand for treasuries, which comes from the Fed, as it doesn't contract its balance sheet. So treasuries rolling off go back in. Now, does that translate into problems this year? Maybe not, but over several years, again, much like with that secular trend towards higher inflation, to me, this is a secular trend towards slightly higher treasury levels in terms of interest rates than we have seen previously. So it really does need to be addressed. But what I've learned in this country, a lot of times we need a crisis before we actually address the problem. So something that definitely needs to be done, but not a risk this year. And I, I, I would agree with you 100%. So let's talk about investing. Where, where are you telling clients in, in this interest rate, slower inflation, but strong economy, what part of the taxable fixed income market do you find attractive at this time? So, you know, uh, I'm actually going to address two things. There's a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines. There remains an Six enormous. trillion? Yeah. I, yeah. Some, there is, something <laughs> thereabouts? Around that much. <laughs> so let's just call it a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines. And here's the thing. 
I understand why it's sitting at the sidelines. You're getting 5% for essentially, you know, close to 5%, a bit above 5% for holding money market. Which again, investors haven't had that. Or they've been at zero. So that 5%, they feel really comfortable with it. And my thought here is, I understand, but I would say I started this conversation. I said this, I think, is going to be a good year for fixed income. I think an important element is a good year for fixed income does not mean equity-like returns. A good year for traditional fixed income means you get fixed income-style returns with lower volatility. So looking further into the year, I'm hoping volatility goes down. It hasn't yet. The Fed needs to kind of extricate itself from being the center of the market for the volatility levels to come down. But what my recommendation would be is clients need to start dipping their toes back into fixed income because, yes, you've got 5%, but you have 5% until the day you don't and you will suddenly not. So I would at least extend from, say, money market to even an ultra short. You know, go to an ultra short, pick up one to two years duration and then start extending duration. And again, depending on risk tolerance, I would say that uh, we actually do like staying higher in quality for a while, but combining it with a certain amount of riskier debt. Keep in mind that one thing, today it's a bit better, but high yield has sold off, which is a good thing because high yield had rallied to a point after Spreads Powell's had gotten very, 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 very tight. tight. We'd gone all the way to something like 325, 330. And that makes no sense because that, that was when the market was pricing almost 150 basis points of break cuts. I think every time you see a conjunction like that, while the economy is strong, you have to ask yourself, one of the two doesn't make sense. That tightness in risky fixed income or blowouts in equities are not consistent with the kind of recession which would, let the, which would get the Fed to suddenly dramatically start cutting rates. So, Sanal, you're really not looking for um, like a lot of bankruptcies that would blow out the, the, the junk bond market? No. Actually, I really am not, but that is very much uh, predicated on my view that the economy is not going to tank. So, look, the junk, we got a bit of a clean out. Or high yield. High yield. I, I use the I, old term junk. <laughs> I know. I, I've, I'm always shocked when, when I hear junk again, but the, you know, the high yield bond market or the bank loan market even, I think you had quite a big clear out over COVID, right? So a lot of weaker issuers got shaken out. You've got a cleaner base. And keep in mind, while I don't think we're going to see rate cuts at the level that the market is anticipating, we're going to see some rate cuts. So in a sense, I do think we might see some pickup in bankruptcies because there are, there are firms which issued at much lower levels and they're now going to have to issue at higher levels. But I'd say that if you pick actively, you can't buy the index. I would not buy index high yield. Because I think it's a bit you'd risky. Be, you'd be select. I think you need to be selective. So let's talk about the role risk because you, you just brought that up. That's another thing you hear a lot about, about this maturing debt that companies are going to have to roll over at a higher rate. Do you, do you find that that will be a negative for companies or the economy or earnings? I think if we look at when we see uh, the maximum level of rolling over coming, it's going to be next year and the year after. And I do think that rates are going to be lower. So that's number one. So that helps. That helps. That's number one. Number two, if we continue to see a robust underlying economy with the kind of demand we've seen, that also helps. 
Now, will companies' margins be squeezed? I think possibly, because I'm also seeing a strong consumer, which in turn implies that they lay off people. Unless they lay off people. And that brings you a full circle back to where is the economy. 4% unemployment to me is not recessionary. You need to get unemployment significantly higher for us to start thinking in terms of recession. But, you know, will companies start becoming more careful about things like CapEx? Yeah, probably things like that would happen. So... What about the tax-exempt market? Any thoughts uh, about there? Because they're, they're very attractive yields on, on a tax-adjusted basis. Absolutely. And actually, the technicals favor that market as well because it's not been very loved. And so I think that the yields are attractive. And overall, munis actually are a place that we are, uh, which we have very high on our recommendation list, particularly in certain states, but even at the federal level, we think that high-yield munis offer a lot of value right now uh, because of the sell-offs that we've seen. And actually... And munis have a tendency not to default as much. They don't default. They don't default as much. And actually, you're getting a pickup even relative to IG corporates. So, you know, it's a very... Uh, uh, it's an attractive space, I'd say. So in terms of duration, and duration is the amount of years you're willing to go out to buy a fixed-income inter- instrument... Is there a duration level that you're recommending for your clients? So right now, you know, we were short duration. We went neutral to just slightly long. This is relative to index. So, you know, so you do have duration in your portfolio, but slightly more duration than the index, just a little bit. But I think as Where is the index in terms of duration? Approximately. Approximately uh, six and a half, seven, depends on the index that you're looking at. But the bottom line is, I'd say that uh, if I look at U.S. Treasuries right now, my levels, I think we, we, last year I thought we would get to, we could perhaps stick to 475, 475 on 10 years, 5 for this year as well. I don't think we're going to see that because the Fed does want to cut and the market is preempting those cuts. But I do think getting 10 years to 425, 450 is very reasonable. And as we approach those 420, that range of 425 to 450 on the 10 year, I would be adding duration. So whether you do it via a fund, whether you do it via just funds treasuries, which I wouldn't recommend, but you know, if you do some kind of a, or an ETF, an ag style product, a core plus style product, I would say those would be good levels to add. Okay, so now the big question. This is a presidential election year. Clients are very passionate about their views on the election. Is there any advice or comments that you're giving clients about the election and the fixed income markets? You know, what, I'd, what I'm going to say may or may not be popular. <laughs> I'm going to say two things. The first one is to try very hard, and it's difficult, to separate the emotions around the elections and the candidates from the financial decisions, which are going with them. Just so you know, I 100% agree with you on that one. Thank you, because it's very hard to do because people people are so invested and there's there's definitely a desire to see the candidates you don't support as being absolutely catastrophic for financial markets. And that may or may not be the case. We've seen this historically, right? Markets do not necessarily follow the emotions of... They absolutely do not follow the emotions. They're they're, they're a bit more hard-headed than we are as individuals. That's number one. And the second piece, which is where I think it is really potentially uh, not very popular, is 
there will be differences to individual sectors. Energy will do better under a Republican administration, let's call it, you know, the thing everyone fears is a Trump administration. Energy will do better under a Trump administration than a Biden administration. That, that's a given. But if I look at other factors, we're looking at two populists. We're not, I, I would be amazed if we saw a significant reduction of the budget de deficit under either a Republican or a Democrat administration. We've got uh, uh, profligates, fiscal profligates on both sides. How it's spent is different. We are likely to probably see more regulation um, under a Democratic administration than a Republican one. And, you know, you can treat that as you will, but this is, this is likely to be the case. And then the question which keeps coming up is tariffs. And here I like to remind everybody that the Democrats and Republicans can agree on nothing except, that the, except for the fact that they dislike China right now in terms of policies, in terms of a trading partner, all of the above. Number two, Trump came in with great fanfare and imposed a whole bunch of tariffs. Not one of those tariffs has gone away under the Biden administration. And that seems to have not been a problem. It's not been a massive problem. People ask me whether across the board 10% tariffs would be catastrophic. And unfortunately, this is really hard for me as an economist. I have been trained, as you have been trained, to believe free trade is good, uh, tariffs are bad. And uh, re the reality is tariffs and free trade, tariffs don't, uh, we are very, very wealthy as a society and the tariffs don't have an important enough impact at something like 10%. They would have to be much higher. Much higher, and it's non-linear. You know, so in a sense, if you go to massive tariffs, you know, you talk, I'm talking smooth-hawley, that level, yes, of course it would have an impact. But unless you go to that level, it really doesn't have a significant, may have a short-term emotional impact. So you may have a, but not a long-term detrimental impact. We can't find it in the data is what I'm saying, because we had all these free trade agreements, and it's very difficult to see the, and there's been mountains of research on this because, of course, we all want to prove that free trade is a good thing. We can't. That's the reality. That's very interesting. Now, we've covered a lot of different topics here today. So my final question to you is, what haven't we talked about that you think our listeners would be very interested in? The one thing we haven't talked about, it's, it is... Uh, in Donald Rumsfeld's immortal words, <laughs> the known unknown, and that is geopolitics. We haven't talked about it, and it's it's like uh, we we in markets have become almost sanguine about the fact that we live in an uncertain world. I would note that, you know, just in the last month and a half, we had Putin make a speech in Kaliningrad, which is this tiny uh, Russian enclave in the uh, in the Baltics talking about taking back the Baltics. Now, let's keep in mind that, you know, the Baltics are part of the EU. So you've got one piece over there. You've got China, the eternal issue with Taiwan, which is lurking in the background. And we all know that eventually she sees a unified China. Then we have the Middle East, which speaks for itself. I look at those, uh, and I know everyone's thinking about them, but at a certain level, we're not because we've become accustomed to these issues. We should recognize that this is an election year. There is uncertainty on how the event, what the eventual outcome will be. 
and it comes at a time of global uncertainty. So everything we've talked about today is baseline. And I think you cannot manage your portfolios to tail risks, but we need to be very aware that tail risks are huge, they're real. And for me, the biggest fear is that we don't have the silver bullets anymore, you know, from the from the Fed or from the fiscal fiscal side is overspent. Overspent already. You can't do what we did for COVID and blow out budget anymore. The one thing I would add when I'm talking to clients about geopolitics and it's a tough conversation because, again, it's a very passionate uh, conversation, but I look at it in terms of the equity market. Unless you're negatively impacting earnings, it it really doesn't have a significant impact. So one of the things I highlight, if crude oil went above 100 exactly. and stayed above 100, that would become problematic for the consumer, it would become problematic for businesses. Would you agree with that? I would fully agree with that. Absent uh, the war escalating into something the U.S. has actually literally pulled into due to either a terrorist attack or, you know. Right. When we have events like that, markets generally go down 20%. That's what I mean. Yes. And that is the point. I think that when you have confluence of different parts of the world, which are somewhat uncertain, I would just raise that. I'd throw it out there while recognizing that you're not managing your portfolio to that. Right. And that is to focus on the long term, have, you know, appropriate asset allocation. Do you talk about asset allocation? We do. And I'd say that, you know, if you look at uh, actually uh, going back to one one of the things you talked about, where consumers have their wealth as a percentage of their personal disposable income, we're close to record lows in terms of fixed income. And you can understand why. We're coming off 15 years where fixed income did not deliver income and it did deliver volatility, which is not a very great place to be. But I would say that uh, it is probably a good time to keep in mind you should have some boring assets in your so portfolio. So 60-40 is not dead. I don't think it's dead. I don't think it's dead. I, I, I think we tried to murder it over 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, by those rates being as low as they were. But uh, I don't think it's dead. Uh, And I think for multiple reasons in the decade ahead, there will be reasons to stay invested in fixing. Well, Sanal, thank you for such an enlightening and and terrific conversation. You're, You're always a pleasure to talk to. And I always learn so much when I talk to you. Love being here. So, so happy. And so happy you invited me. Thank you. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in today. Thank you for watching or listening to the Friends of Sanctuary podcast. Tune in next month to be sure not to miss out on the next installment of the series. Securities offered through Sanctuary Securities, Inc., member FINRA, SIPC. Advisory services offered through Sanctuary Advisors, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Sanctuary Securities, Inc. and Sanctuary Advisors, LLC are wholly owned subsidiaries of Sanctuary Wealth Group, LLC.